At this moment in Washington, their first face-to-face -face talks in two years. Israel launches third day of attacks on Gaza. A second day of riots, which have now claimed at least seven lives. A tsunami of instability. The suicide blasts in the Moscow metro system uh, leads our news today. Water and fuel prices have also gone up. Jordan, the Palestinian territories, Sudan, Yemen, the list really goes on. The wars and the terrorism, this is all the birth pain. These are the beginnings of what's coming. Good afternoon. How are you guys doing? Great to see you. Thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, I'm finishing up a series that we've been doing. This is the fifth week. The, the series is End of Days, as you can see very cl uh, clearly. It's been a study on the end times, on primarily the book of Revelation. And um, I just wanted to as I start, go through the first four weeks to make sure we're all caught up and on the same page. The first week, Pastor Lynn began uh, by talking about the idea of Bible prophecy. That throughout scriptures from the beginning to end, the Bible is full of prophecies of things that will happen, things that will take place. And the interesting thing about the Bible is the Bible has a standard of 100% accuracy. It says, if, if the Word says it, if God has said it, it will happen. We looked at examples from early, early in the Bible and, and Isaiah, some of the prophecies regarding Jesus, that were, were, or a Messiah specifically, regarding a Messiah that were hundreds and thousands of years, not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds or thousands of years before Jesus. And these prophecies that were made were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Statistically, we looked at it's improbable. It is impossible for all those things to happen apart from God's sovereign involvement in history. And these things that were uh, coming true in the life of Jesus were the fulfillment of prophecies that God himself had given. And in the same way, the book of Revelation and, and throughout scriptures talks about end times, the end of days, and lets us know the gist of how things are going to take place. Now, now let's be really clear. The Bible is 100% true in its authority and in its accuracy. I didn't just say people are 100% accurate in their interpretation. I didn't say that everybody who has enough money to put a billboard on the side of the highway and own a radio station and say Jesus is coming back in 1988. No, I mean 1994. No, I mean May 21st, 2011. Oh, oops, I was wrong. Okay, it must be October. <laughs> That's what happened with this guy. Even though the Bible clearly says no one knows the hour that Christ will return. He's been wrong three times so far. My guess is the fourth is going to be one more strikeout. The Bible itself is accurate. The Bible itself is authoritative. Here's the deal, though. As Pastor Lynn said in that first week, we don't know what every detail of the book of Revelation means. And my purpose today and our purpose in this series is not to answer every single question that you could possibly have about the end of days. Because let me just tell you, I've been studying this one talk for about three weeks now, and I'm more confused than I was three weeks ago. Our purpose is not to answer every single question. Our purpose is to get the theme 
the vision, the general idea of what God is doing now and then and try to make sense of it all and see the hand of God working in history and the hand of God working in the present and the hand of God working in the future. Um, the second week, Pastor Lynn talked about the rapture, and this is the idea that Jesus will, will come back and, and we will be caught up in the air. And this event, the rapture, is sort of what inaugurates. It kicks off the end of days. It's the first event in the end of days. The third week, we talked about um, the judgment seat of Christ. There's a throne that is referred to in the Bible called the Bema Seat. And the Bema Seat is this interesting thing because it is, it is a... A judgment for Christians. Okay, get, get this straight, because we're going to talk about another throne in a few minutes. It is a judgment for Christians, but it is not a judgment on sin. Because fundamentally what it means to be a Christian is this. Our sin was taken care of on a cross by Jesus Christ. The judgment for our sin, if we're a Christian, was a cross. Because this is what the Bible says. That God made Jesus, who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect. Jesus didn't mess up. God made Jesus hold our sin, carry our sin, take the sin of every single one of us on himself. That's why the Bible depicts the death of Christ as the most tragic event in history. Not just because it was gruesome with nails and thorns and all of that, but because the weight of sin that he carried was more than anyone else could ever bear. So Jesus bore our sins on the cross, so the Bible says. If you're going to face judgment at the judgment seat of Christ, it means you're a Christian. But it's not a judgment of sin, it's a judgment on your responsibility. How did you live your life in light of what Christ had done for you? Were you a good steward of what God gave you? Did the ma you make the most of the opportunities that God gave you? Did you live faithfully? with what God had entrusted with you. That's what the judgment seat of Christ is about. It's for Christians, but not judging sin. It's, it's a judgment of rewards. It's a judgment of rewards to reward faithfulness with great rewards. And even if you weren't that, that faithful, you still get rewards. It's just not as many. But the rewards, let's just, I'll just stop there for a minute. But the, the rewards are not for us. The rewards are for us to worship God with and give them back to him. Okay, that's another sermon. I don't have time to go there. Um, fourth, last week, the Great Tribulation was the topic. We talked about this seven-year period that the Bible describes. The first three and a half years of it are bad. The, the Bible describes the worst economy this, this world has ever seen. The Bible describes continued wars and, and devastation and famine and disease. And all these things are going on. And then somebody begins to rise to power to unite the nations. And there's the beginning of this one world government. There's a middle to this tribulation period where, where this person is revealed a little bit more to be the Antichrist. There's a, a second three and a half year period of this tribulation period that is worse than anything we could possibly imagine. One of the things that's, that's so bad is the Battle of Armageddon. And it says that the battle is so severe that the blood of those who are slain is neck deep on the horses of that time. It is a horrendous battle. And the Bible says that in the middle of that Battle of Armageddon, Jesus comes back. And he comes in power. And, and we're doing this series, like I said, 
not with the hopes of answering every single question that you have, but to say, maybe you're like me. Sometimes we are so focused, even consumed, with now. With what's going on right now that we forget what's next. Sometimes we're so just preoccupied with everything that's going on in our lives at this moment that we forget what's next. We forget the reality is this. We can only fully understand now and fully live now in light of eternity. Because whether you live to the ripe old age of 19 or whether you live to be 73 or 97 or whatever, your life is just a vapor here on earth, a mist compared to eternity. And all of our decisions here on earth, all of our decisions and choices and, and way we live our life, every single choice impacts eternity. But we don't think about what's next very often. How many of you, like me, you were a part of graduation things this past week? Anybody? Okay, so there's some of us here. Uh, we had things Wednesday and Thursday graduation related. Started off Wednesday when my son graduated pre-K. I'm like, seriously? Like, pass the juice, share your goldfish, and don't pick your nose are qualifications for graduation from preschool? They didn't have those kind of things when I was growing up. I don't know about you, but we had that Wednesday. Then uh, Thursday, we had my daughter Kate graduate from kindergarten. Um, so, yeah. I'll tell you more about that. Some of you don't know what that means, but that's a big deal. Um, my kids have had this interesting thing this week. Will has been a pre-K kid for a while. Now he's a kindergartner and he's proud of it. He wants everybody to know. In fact, Mama Zipporah is, is here from Africa and she said she saw Will outside and he told her, hey, I'm a kindergartner. He's proud of it and he's telling people, hey, I'm a kindergartner. Don't, don't associate me with what I was. Associate me with what I am going to be. He had a new identity and he's proud of it. My, my daughter Kate, she's no longer a kindergartner. She's a first grader and she wants everybody to know it. I'm a first grader. Olivia's no longer in third grade. She's a fourth grader. They have taken this new identity of who they are going to be. What's next? And said, that's who I am now. I'm going to start living like it. And, and I'll be honest, I've just sat back and laughed and smiled because I'm thinking through this message. I'm like, that's a good sermon illustration, number one. But, but how many of us should live like that? What we're going to be, what is next, should inform, should determine what we do here and how we live now. And in light of what we're going to talk about today, I pray that God would speak to your heart and prompt you to begin to make some of those shifts to, to live that way. Because here's, here's the assurance that I can make. At some point in time, something's going to happen that will cause you to think about eternity. At some point in time, you're going to be faced with, with a situation or a circumstance in life that it will be inescapable. And whether it's like what happened to us two years ago when my daughter was diagnosed with brain cancer and we've been fighting this for two years, a life and death battle, to fight and determine the reality of, of eternity for our six-year-old, now seven-year-old daughter. It's a wake-up call. And, and some of you have heard the story of, 
about a year ago, we're in Houston for treatment for her, and she's getting radiation. My wife and I just felt like we've got to have the conversations with her. We've got to start talking about how is she processing this? Does she understand what's at stake? And so we were having like the, a big, big, like death, dying, heaven conversation with a six-year-old. So we're trying to talk about these things. Trying to be a little theological with a six-year-old. And in the midst of it, she looks at me. She says, hey, Daddy, are there dolphins in heaven? <laughs> I'm like, oh, what does that have to do with our conversation? Okay, yeah, you know, I don't know. Probably, maybe, I don't know. Um, so try to be serious again. And I mean, my wife and I are serious. We're carrying the weight of this conversation. And Kate says, hey, Daddy, in heaven, do you think I can swim with dolphins? Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Okay, we, we try to get back in the conversation again, and she says, hey, Dad, you think Jesus and I can swim with the dolphins together? And I'm like, so then she just takes it over the top. She says, Dad, do you think Jesus would mind if I just called him Jeez? And we lost it. We gave up on the conversation, but what we realized in that moment is she believes what we told her. We believe, she believes what we told her the Bible says. She didn't have, or she may have had questions, but those questions didn't cause her to not believe. She simply believed. And she was going to live in light of what she believed. Make choices in light of what she believed. But we're faced with that kind of eternity. What's next? How's this all going to happen? We've lived that. In April of last year, just a, probably a few weeks after this discussion, we're in Houston still sitting on, um, sitting in our apartment, and I get a phone call. Um, little two-year-old boy that Kate had been roommates with in, in the hospital for quite some time um, died of his battle with leukemia. And the parents said, can you, can you come and be a part of the funeral service? And I just said, honestly, I don't know if I can. Uh, but, but I did and tried to help parents navigate in their lives eternity. And what does all of this mean? And what's next? And how do you go through this? Five months after that event, I'm sitting in my office. My mom calls on my cell phone and says, your brother-in-law, Sean, just died in a plane crash. So my sister's husband dies, and honestly, we're pretty full of questions about his relationship with God. And I'm faced with not just his eternity and, and dealing with his family and helping with the funeral and all that. I'm also challenged with, did I share this message that I say I believe with him? Did I miss an opportunity that God had given me to say something? Did I, did I miss my chance? And I'm wrestling with the weight of that. So I'm, I'm just saying all this, not to, not to make you feel bad or guilty or anything, but just to say, we can't just act like it doesn't exist. We can't just turn off the switch and say, I'm, forget eternity. It doesn't really matter. No, it, it does matter. It matters immensely. 
how we live right now in light of that. If you have your Bible, take it, um, turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, we'll start in verse 11. As you're turning there, I just think it's interesting that, that we're living in this time right now where the devastation around the world is, is amazing. You, you have instant coverage of the tsunami that has just wrecked this part of Japan, and you still see them suffering and, 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 and working through horrible issues. And at the same time, you hear about these crises in the Middle East. You hear about what's going on in Egypt and, and Libya. And, and then in the last week, obviously, you, you see what the destruction of a tornado can do to, to towns, and hundreds of people lose their life. And I was flipping through the, the channels the other night, and uh, notice on CNN, Anderson Cooper is live from Joplin, Missouri. And he's describing the scene, and these are his words that he uses. He says, it looks like something from the Battle of Armageddon. I thought, that's interesting. Piers Morgan is in the studio talking to him, and Piers Morgan describes it as a post-apocalyptic scene. And I just thought, isn't, it that, isn't that amazing that when the catastrophes happen, when we're looking for a word, a phrase to describe how bad things really are, we go to these words that are found in Scripture. We turn to them. We may not believe them in any other sense, but we can use them to, to, to describe what we're seeing. But what we're going to read about in just a minute, it really is. It really is as bad as it gets. It really is the most horrendous event that could ever happen and will ever happen in human history. Let's read verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled away from his presence, and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, so quickly, let me just set up the, the, the throne that's, that is pictured here. First of all, it's called a great throne. Uh, Pastor Lynn said last week about the tribulation. It's not just the tribulation. It's the great tribulation for a reason. The word great is important because it's signifying the intensity. It's signifying what's going on. In the same way, this is not just any throne that is being talked about in this passage. This is the great throne. This is a throne that, that is the judgment, the final judgment for all of history. Where this judgment we talked about earlier, the Bema Seat of Christ is a judgment only for Christians, and it's a judgment of rewards. This great white throne judgment, it's a judgment for unbelievers. We'll talk about that, who that's for it a little bit more in a minute. We'll see in the passage. But this is the final judgment for all history. It's great. And every unbeliever's destiny will be declared and shown true with ample proof at this judgment. It's white, and this white symbolizes purity, holiness, righteousness. The absolute purity of this supreme court is conveyed by the term, this is a white throne. No one here is wrongly condemned or wrongly convicted. 
because absolute justice takes place before this throne. Maybe you've heard the psalm that's where David is saying, Oh Lord, how long will the, the wicked get away with their evil ways? Maybe you felt like that in life sometimes. We just need justice. How can people get away with, with these things? There are atrocities all around us. This is judgment day. This is absolute justice on display for all of eternity. And it's the throne is just speaking of majesty, unlimited power. But, but uh, John in his vision says, he saw him who was seated on the throne. And I think this is interesting because what we see is this, is, this is a description of Jesus Christ himself, who was God in the flesh here on earth. This is Jesus Christ and his authority in heaven. Because he told us in, in the book of John, I think chapter 5, that the Father judges no one. He's given all authority to judge to the Son. And so here Jesus is carrying out the judgments Sitting and reigning, and look what it says in the middle of the verse. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. Um, if you want to know what that means, I can't tell you. I have no idea. Uh, earth and sky fled away from his presence. I don't know. It sounds like a cool movie scene. I'm not sure what it means, but I, I know what it hints towards. Um, look just a few verses down into chapter 21, verse 1. Before the throne, earth and uh, the sky, they, they fly away. They flee from his presence. Verse 21 of uh, chapter, I'm sorry. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I, I, I can't exactly tell you what it means that they flew away, but I can tell you this. God is recreating. God is redeeming creation. God is restoring creation because Creation is cursed. That's why there's tornadoes. That's why there's tsunamis. So God is going to recreate this earth in a perfect form as it originally was intended to do. But he says that here in, in verse 1, there's a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and earth have passed away. So we see God's salvation in the midst of this story. The passage we're focusing on in the great white throne is primarily judgment. But that's just one side of the coin. There's also salvation at every moment of this story. Continue reading, chapter 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. In this new place, God will be there with us. God will be among us, dwelling with us. We will have access to him. He's right there with us. And listen to what it says he's doing. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Until Thursday, I've never cried at a graduation. But man, as you're seeing your daughter who's been fighting this battle for two years, just started chemo the day before graduation, Walking across that stage, I am a proud dad, but I am a proud just of, of in all of her strength as well, saying, oh my word, my wife and I couldn't even contain ourselves. And then I looked around and other people were crying. I'm like, what are you crying for? What has your kid done? But, but I just realized this is an emotional moment because, and I had some moms talk to me out there. They're like, oh, I always cried at graduations. I always cried at kindergarten celebrations. And it's just that kind of moment. But but. 
I'll just be honest, I'm tired of crying. I am sick of crying. And when I read a promise that God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes because there's not going to be a need to cry anymore, I'm like, yes, Jesus, come on, hurry up. Because I am sick of crying. I'm sick of mourning and I'm sick of death being a part of our earth. I'm sick of pain. I'm sick of things just not working out. And Jesus says, I'm going to make all things new. And that's what this is all about. Back to verse 12 of chapter 20. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So John in his vision sees this throne, but he sees what he says, the dead, great and small. He means the nobodies and the somebodies. The rich and the poor. He sees the really, really, really bad people. He also sees some good people. And he sees them and they're doing something very interesting. The Bible says their posture is this. They're standing. They're standing before the throne. They're standing in judgment. And and what does that mean? I mean, what is the picture that's trying to be conveyed here? You guys have seen enough episodes of Law and Order, and some of you have been to court enough yourself. You know what it means when you stand up. You know what it means when you stand up before court. You're, you're no longer pleading your case. You're no longer defending yourself. When it's time to stand up, it is sentencing time. And so this is a sentence for decisions and choices made long ago. And it says that something interesting is going on here. Read, read all of verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is called the Book of Life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So he sees this vision and there's there's books, plural, that are over here. Books are opened. And basically the story of the Bible tells us this, that every single thing you have ever done in your life is recorded. Every single word that has come out of your mouth, it's recorded. Get this, this is worse. Every single thought that has ever entered your mind is recorded. Now books are old school, so like if if we were writing this, we would say there is a video of your life. There's a YouTube channel in heaven or, or at the judgment seat, and there's a big screen. No popcorn involved. And every one of your deeds... And every one of your words is there before a pure and a holy God. And and as I was reading this and studying this, I I had this picture in my mind of of people coming and saying, Hey, look at what I've done. Look, my good has outweighed my bad. Fortunately, I mean, it was close sometimes, but my good outweighed my bad. You've got to accept me, God. Look at what I've done. And in futility, they're trying to argue from their works that God should accept them. And they're saying, look, look at this record. But then there's another book. A big book. Lots of room for lots of people called the Book of Life. And we're going to talk about these in more detail in just a minute. But these two different books, sets of books, 
fundamentally represent two different ways of approaching God. And here's what Jesus said. We'll we'll save the book of life for a few minutes. Here's what Jesus said about this. If you are approaching me based on what you've done, it doesn't work. You can't be good enough. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, if you have your Bible. He says, he's referring to this judgment day and in this time where many are standing before God in judgment. And he said, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, just because you know the right words, just because you've got the language down, that, that's not what it's about. Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. The word of relationship, a word of intimacy. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So he says there's going to be people who come and they're like, in your book, look, right there it says, I prophesied for you. Look right there, it says, I somehow kicked a demon out of somebody. I did an exorcism. I did it. I mean, that's what the text says. Somebody else says, I did miracles for you, God. I mean, those are like big things. So I also assume there's people saying, hey, God, I came to church most of the time. Hey, God, I prayed to you. God, I tried to be a good person. I tried to love the people that I liked. I tried, God. And they're trying to make a case before God. And it's not really working. We will come back to this in just just a minute. Verse 13. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Who will be judged at the great white throne? The unsaved, the people who did not believe in Jesus and have died since the day of Adam. They will come back because it's judgment time. Remember, Christians are judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Christians who are alive at that time are judged there. This judgment is primarily for unbelievers, the great white throne, primarily for unbelievers. It says also, though, that the sea gave up their dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. They're they're brought back from the dead to be judged, to hold account. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Let me just stop there for a second. It says the judgment is for the unsaved, the people who do not believe, but this judgment is also for Satan and his angels, his demons. And this place, the lake of fire, has been created specifically for them. Look up into chapter 20, verse 10. And it's, we, we've already been told the devil's fate. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast 
and the false prophet had already been thrown, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 25 that this lake of fire, this place, was especially created for Satan and his demonic angels, his demons. This lake of fire was specifically created for them because of their rebellion, because of their rejection of God, because of their absolute rejection of Jesus Christ. This place, this lake of fire, was created for them. But here is the absolutely devastating part of this story is that there have been men and women, there have been young people, just like some of us. We have rejected God. We have rejected Jesus Christ. God doesn't make us go to this place. God doesn't purposely, willfully send us to this place. God is longing for a relationship with us. God wants to know us. God loves us so much he sent his son to die on a cross for our sins. Yet still, some reject him. And their rejection, in the end, they ultimately get what they want. They get their own way. They want to do things their own way. They don't want God involved. And ultimately, that's exactly what happens. The problem is, it's in the same place the devil and the angels are. This should break our hearts. And this should open up our eyes to understand how important our choices in this life are. Verse 15 of this passage says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So let me talk about this difference a little bit more. There's two fundamental different ways of approaching God represented here. The first is this. The first is saying, I can come on my own trying to earn our way, trying to be good enough, thinking that if I'm just good enough, then God will accept me. Trying to keep a record of rights and wrongs, trying to keep these things listed and keep an account before God. And here's what God says about that way. It does not work. The reason this is a white throne we're talking about, a pure throne, is because God is perfect, therefore His standard is perfection. So if you want to keep a record of right and wrong to earn your way, then the standard is you have to be perfect because God is perfect. You can't earn it. So that's why the Bible says things like, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wages of those sins, the wages of our sins and our failure, even if it's one failure, if you lived your whole entire life and you only messed up once, wow, you'd be good. If you did or you could do that, that one would be too much because God's standard is perfection. If you want to go that route. But this is what God has done. Says, I said the first part of the verse, for the wages of sin is death. But the Bible says, but the gift of God, the gift, free gift, you can't earn it. It's a gift. He gives it. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So if you want to say, what does it mean to be a Christian, or what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, or what does it mean to have your name written in the book of the life? It's a fundamental shift in the way you approach. You don't say, I'm going to try to earn it. You say, Christ has already done it. I'm accepted because of who Christ is, not because of who I am. So here's, 
Here's another way of saying it. The fundamental approach of this is to say, look at my record. Look at what I've done. I'm not guilty at this judgment. You're, it's almost like you're standing and you're trying to make a case. I'm a pretty good person. So you're declaring yourself before the judge not guilty. But when the evidence comes out, the verdict is you're guilty. Case closed. And this may be the surprising thing for some of you. What it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to have your name written in the book of life, is not that you declare your innocence, it's not that you say, I'm not guilty, it's you say, I'm guilty. This may be a surprise to you, but Jesus did not die on a cross for good people. He died on a cross for guilty people. And the only people who come to him in saving faith are the people who come and say, I have sinned, I have messed up, please forgive me. And repent and turn from their wicked ways. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot come to Christ without saying, I am sorry. I have messed up my life. And so having your name written in this, it means there's a time in your life where you, God grabbed you, God got a hold of you, and you responded by saying, I'm guilty. Please forgive me. We asked everyone to take one of these as they walked in. Would you grab this for a minute? And I'm going to ask you, would you just tear off that bottom part? On the front of that, there's a, a section that says info about you, and there's a section called more info. At the bottom of the more info, there's a blue thing that says my decision today, and then a box that says accept Jesus as my Lord. Accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Here's the question I have for you. Maybe you've been here for a few weeks of this series. Maybe this is your first week here. But if there's something going on inside of you right now and you can't even explain it, it's like your heart is stirring. Your mind is racing. Because for so long you've, you've lived like this thinking, I need to be good enough. I need to try harder, do better. And it's not working out. And you're coming to the end of yourself to just say, I'm tired of trying by myself. Would you today choose Jesus? Would you today say, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I can't do it on my own. I never could. And would you today cling to the cross where Jesus took every wrong you've ever done, every failure, every mistake that you've ever done, Jesus took that on himself because the Bible says this, so we could be free, so we could be set free, so we could be forgiven. Would you today say, I'm guilty? The Bible says if you confess your sin, if you say, I, I'm guilty and I'm sorry, if you confess it, that God is faithful and just, he will forgive you of every sin you've ever committed. He will forgive you and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will begin a work of cleaning you out. You don't have to say, I'll get my act together and then come to God. Come to him dirty. Come to him guilty. Come to him 
broken. So if that's you, and you want to make that kind of a decision today, I'm asking you, would you check accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior on this? I'm asking you to write your name on this. Give us a little information so we can pray for you, so we can send you some, some info to help you out. There's another group of you that I want to talk to just a moment. The seriousness of this moment, of reading this passage of Scripture of the Great White Throne Judgment, should break our hearts for people that we know that do not know Christ. And so I'm asking you, is there somebody that, that you know is far from Christ, that you know you just need to pray for them, and you need to boldly take a step of just saying, can I talk to you about something? Because you don't want to have one of those moments where you question, did I wait too long? Did I miss my opportunity? You want to take advantage of, if you really believe this, you want to at least give a person the chance to believe, to hear the story for themselves. So I'm asking you, would you write that person's name on this? Commit, I will pray for them, and I will, I will pray that God gives me an opportunity to speak into their lives. Let's take a moment, and we're going to pray. And, and if you would, would you just close your eyes so that nobody feels pressure of people looking around or anything? But if today you, you feel like you are ready to make a decision to follow Christ, you are ready to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're ready to say, I'm guilty. Please forgive me. And you've been trying things your own way for so long, and today you realize... It's futile. And today you just confess, God, I need you. I'm going to ask you to just say a simple prayer after me. Don't say it out loud. You don't have to do that. But in your heart, if you pray this, God hears you. And I want you to just repeat some kind of words like this. No magical formula, but just simple prayer from a broken heart. God in heaven, I'm guilty. If that's you today, pray that. God in heaven, I'm guilty. I have been wrong in so many ways. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? I believe Jesus died on a cross for me. I believe Jesus rose from the grave I believe Jesus conquered my sin. Jesus, take over my life. Still with our eyes closed. I really believe some of you have prayed that today. And maybe for the first time in your life, you really mean it. You don't understand the implications of all that it means, but you mean it. And I just want to tell you, this is, this is the decision that separates all the decisions. This is the, the moment, because the Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart, but respond. If you just prayed that prayer and you meant it, you've responded to God. And I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. I'm going to ask you to acknowledge right now before God that you made that decision. If you prayed that, 
If you checked that box today and you said, today I'm guilty, today I'm asking for forgiveness, so today I am following Christ, I'm going to ask you to do something. Be bold enough to stand up in this room. Nobody's looking around right now. I'm going to ask you, will you stand up? Thank you. Thank you. God, you see every man and every woman. You see every young person who is standing in this moment. And God, we thank you for this. We thank you that you are a God who forgives our sins, a God who cleanses us. We thank you that you are a God of second and third and fourth chances, that you are a God who never gives up. And today I want to pray for these men and women that you would set them free, God, that you would give them the new life that you have promised for them. And so, God, I pray over them in Jesus' name. We rejoice in this room today for every person who has prayed to receive you, and it is in Jesus' name we pray. Can we just all celebrate together just thanking God? If you have put someone's name down on this sheet and you say, I'm praying for them, and Aaron, pray for me that I'll have the boldness to reach out to them. Will you just hold it up in the air and say, we're lifting this up to you, God. We're lifting these people to you. And Lord in heaven, we are praying, would you save, would you deliver these people who, who need your salvation, God. We lift it up to you. God, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.